too, so we got to hurry. So, I know some of you, this is your first week, so welcome to our Tuesday Bible study. We do this every Tuesday. The owner, Bruce Chris, Jeff Conway, he provides the food, I provide the teaching, and you provide the tip for the wait staff, hopefully, because they work hard to uh, serve us each week, so we want to thank them. I don't get any of that money, uh, so give generously. But um, we, we want to welcome you. We're in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 8 this week. If you miss any week, uh, the reason I have a little camera on the funky tripod there is because we record video every week, and then I go across the street to Panera, usually right after this, and upload it to my YouTube channel. So if you miss a week, you're traveling, you got a meeting with a high-powered client or whatever you business people do, uh, you can catch up on it 30 minutes each week. You can watch it on your lunch break. Uh, you can get caught up. We've got everything from Genesis 14 on, is because we did all of Genesis the last year and a half, and then um, all of Exodus so far. And the goal will be every week to continue so that there's a library of video Bible study resources that cover however far we get in our study. Um, so be sure to check that out before you leave. I have a card with my website, which is where uh, there's links to the videos and uh, there's hours and hours of other video audio footage available free online, as well as some resources, books, things that I've written, uh, and that helps me pay my bills so I can come do this uh, for you guys as well. So before you leave, take a card, and even if you already know about my website and Disciple Dojo's ministry, take a card anyway and give it to somebody else, give it to a coworker. If you're a smartphone person, when you're here, just do the little tag thing where you say, hey, I'm Ruth Chris, eating free lunch, enjoying an awesome Bible study with a handsome Bible teacher. Um, do whatever you want to do. But the point is, we want to get the word out because we still got seats here. And as long as we still have seats, that's places where people could come and could be served by this ministry that Jeff and I put on for this community. So let people know, get the word out. Last announcement, um, in two weeks, uh, I guess two weeks or so, April 23rd, at my church down in South Charlotte, Good Shepherd United Methodist Church, we're going to be starting another Thursday night, six-week course based on my Bible for the Rest of Us class. It's, it's actually a condensed version. It's called Reveal, uh, Introducing the Library We Call the Bible. And it's a six-week course that covers the Bible big picture. How do we interpret it? How do we read it? Why are there different translations? How do I pick a good study Bible? What are passages that have been misinterpreted? What's the big overall story? So six weeks, it's only 15 bucks and childcare is available. So if you're interested in that, it's open to anybody, not just Good Shepherd people. Uh, we usually have between 60 and 100 people or so, give or take. But it's a really cool six week study. So come check that out. You can register for that online um, at the Good Shepherd website, gsumc.org, or you can ask me about it. But that starts in two-ish weeks, April 23rd. So let's jump into Exodus. We are in the Exodus plagues, the famous plagues. Um, chapters 7 began the plagues. And what the thing to keep in mind that we've kind of harped on the whole time is these aren't just random acts where God is just showing off, you know, and he's not just, I don't like Egyptians and I do like Hebrews, so I'm going to make the Egyptians miserable. There's a purpose in these plagues. It says it in the text. The desire of God is not just so that Israel will be let go from captivity, although that's definitely what God wants. God is not a fan of slavery, but so that they will be let go from serving Pharaoh, and that word serve has appeared over and over, and in your 
NIV translation, if you use NIV, it's translated as worship, but it's actually the Hebrew word serve, and there's a double entendre. They've been serving Pharaoh, quote, worshiping Pharaoh uh, through force against their will. God wants to free them from Pharaoh to serve slash worship him as his people. So there's this, there's this um, balance of power going on. You know, Pharaoh, who is the epitome of the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh is the firstborn of the sun god, Ray, in Egyptian mythology. He is the symbol. He's God incarnate. He's also the political leader. Remember, no separation of church and state. It's politics and religion all together in Egypt. So he's the head of that. He's the symbol of that. And the, Egypt, the, the Hebrews are, quote, worshiping, serving him through slavery against their will. God wants to take them out of that. But not just freedom for freedom's sake. God never does that in the Bible. He never just delivers somebody. Now you're free. Go run and frolic. It's not like that. God frees people so that they can serve him. In fact, the New Testament authors would pick up on that, talking about the well-known institution of slavery in the Roman Empire, and they would describe themselves, like Paul does in Romans, as a slave of Christ Jesus, as a slave of the Lord God. And so for the Hebrews, it was leaving one master and being transferred to the only legitimate master. Any, any master that's not the God of the universe is not a master worth serving, ultimately. And that's one of the messages that Exodus is hammering home, is God doesn't just free them because he dislikes slavery. He frees them because he dislikes oppressive slavery, and he wants them to be people that worship him. So it's deliverance from one master to another is the theme of the Exodus. And lo and behold, that's the theme of the New Testament as well. Deliverance from sin and Satan and death to being the slave of God and righteousness and Christ. And that's a whole, you can see that explicitly in Romans chapter 6 and 7. Paul specifically uses Exodus imagery to paint the gospel image. We said it, I've said it before, we'll say it again. Exodus is the Hebrew gospel. It is to the Hebrew people what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is to us. Exodus is their Easter. There's no coincidence that Passover and Easter are happen around the same time each year because it's the same thing. Easter is supposed to be Passover 2.0. It's supposed to be Passover to the extreme. And it's what's been promised all along. So Exodus is a foretaste of what's going to happen through Easter and through uh, Pentecost, ultimately. Pentecost was the day that Jews celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai after the Exodus. And then Pentecost was the time that God chose to send down the Holy Spirit after the resurrection. So knowing Exodus, having an understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament doesn't just help you know the Old Testament. It radically transforms your view of the New Testament. In fact, I would say you cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. You can get hints and glimpses. You may pick up a John 3.16 here and there. You may get a Romans road or something that leads you to Jesus somehow. But it won't be through the path that God intended. It will be in spite of not knowing Scripture rather than through Scripture. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of teaching the Old Testament. And, and I will never give somebody a New Testament that doesn't include Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know, it, it's, it's all Scripture. It's all our story. So we're in the middle of these deliverance acts that God's doing. And each one of these acts targets or affects a specific Egyptian god in the Egyptian pantheon. Egyptians were pantheists that believed that God was nature, nature was God, and that each aspect of nature was an aspect of the divine, a different god, a different goddess. So what affects nature 
is a theological statement as well as an ecological statement. And the things that God is targeting through these plagues are, are, are dabbling in the realm of all the Egyptian gods and goddesses and showing systematically God's complete sovereignty over it. In the ancient world, it's not like they didn't believe other gods existed. What they believed, whether it's Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians, Canaanites, Hittites, Sumerians, what they believed was that God was God in his land. So if you go to Egypt, Ray is the big head honcho god, and the other god whose goddesses are underneath him, but they rule the roost in Egypt. If you go to Babylon, then you have to deal with Marduk and the Babylonian gods and all of those. If you go to Canaan, that's when you get into worship of Baal and Asherah and those guys. When a nation would take over another nation, militarily, what they said was happening was in the heavens, the gods of one nation were overthrowing the gods of another nation. So it, it, the idea that, that God was sovereign over all of the universe was totally foreign to most people outside of Israel. It was gods of Egypt are sovereign in Egypt, gods of Assyria are sovereign in Assyria, gods of Babylon are sovereign in Babylon. All of a sudden now, this, this nobody, Moses, comes on the scene with this army of slaves, slave laborers, and he says, actually, our God, you don't know his name, I'll tell you, it's Yahweh, it means I am, because he is, and he's the, not just God over all the earth, but the only actual God. Everything else you worship is just part of nature something that humans invented or a spiritual force that set itself up as a god but it's really a demonic in nature. That's the attitude of the Israelites towards these other gods throughout history. And it, it's radical. I mean, it, it is a radical shift in, in philosophical and religious thinking in the ancient Near East. And that's what makes the Israelite religion so unique as it comes on the scene, seemingly out of nowhere. Although we, those of you that are with us in Genesis, you know how it developed all along. So we're in Exodus 8. We're in the third, uh, we're looking at the third, fourth, and fifth plagues or signs. And the, the plague series goes in threes. So there's three, and, and, and it's, there's structural markers you can tell this. Like the, the first one of each series starts with Moses going out to Pharaoh early in the morning. Uh, the first one in each one involves Aaron's staff. The second one involves just God doing it. And the third one involves Moses using the staff. So there's this literary pattern, these three, 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 pause for Passover, and then the final plague. So we're in the second section, we're going into the second section of this series, and our chapters don't really align with that because chapters were added in the Middle Ages and after the printing press, and you can ignore chapters in your Bible, but they make a handy starting and stopping point for a 30-minute Bible study. So that's what we're doing. Chapter 8. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile, after he turned it into blood or blood red stuff, whatever it was. So a week, a whole week of them having to dig for water and the, the land stinking because of all the dead fish. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what Yahweh, and I'll use Yahweh whenever it says Lord in all caps, just so you can hear the name of God. This is what Yahweh says, let my people go so that they may worship or actually serve me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, into your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Now in the previous plague, Pharaoh wasn't really that affected. 
Pharaoh had people that could bring him water to drink. He didn't have to go out to the Nile and dig. His morning bath may have got interrupted, but that's about it. This one now, God is amping it up. He's saying, actually, I'm going to bring this plague, and it's going to happen to you. They're going to come up into your palace, into your bed. I've never been in a bed with frogs. Probably not the easiest way to sleep. Probably loud and gross. But the idea is, Pharaoh, you're not going to escape this. You can't just go off into your palace while your people suffer. They're going to actually come up everywhere. Uh, why frogs, by the way? It doesn't seem very threatening. Why not crocodiles or something? Um, again, targeting the Egyptian pantheon. The, the Egyptian goddess Heket. H-E-Q-T or H-E-K-E-T, how do you spell it, was one of the goddesses of Egypt, was the fertility goddess. She was the goddess that, was, that oversaw fertility, and she was symbolized by the frog. That was her sign. That was her you know, image that she's used. You can see it in Egyptian carvings and relief and things. So the frogs were kind of like a good, either a blessing or a symbol of the fertility of the Nile, or for whatever reason, now... It's kind of like, all right, you want to worship the frog? Get ready, because they're about to be everywhere. Talk about fertility. I'm going to bring it hardcore fertility, and they're going to be all over the place. So there's a sense theologically of what would have been subtly communicated, also beyond just what is plainly an annoyance. So the Lord God said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land. The magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now again, we don't know how the magicians did this. Uh, you know, maybe they had some frogs somewhere, and they you know, release it, and frogs come up, and they go, ha-ha, see, we can do that too. And it gives Pharaoh and his officials an excuse to not believe. That's the point. They can mimic the signs like they did with the blood, or the Nile turning to blood, but they can't negate the signs. In other words, it would have been really helpful if the magician said, yeah, we can do that too, and made the frogs leave. But they can't. They can only duplicate, they can only mimic, and it's a shabby mimicking, uh, which is always how Satan works, a shabby duplication of the real. So, Pharaoh, they do that, they show that they're able to, verse eight, Pharaoh summoned Moses, and said, uh, Moses and Aaron, and said, pray to Yahweh to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. That uh, grammar is not quite right. In IV, there's the sense of it is, uh, pray to him, and I may let your people go. There's a, there's a, I think it's either the cohortative, or the, I think it's the subjunctive. It's been a while since I've done Hebrew grammar. But the point is that there's, there's kind of a, he's saying, all right, you pray to Yahweh, make the frog go, and I'll think about, you know, maybe I'll let him go. Uh, Moses, verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, I'll leave it to your honor, the, the setting of the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. So tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like Yahweh our God. Frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. When Yahweh did what Moses asked, the frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. 
This is the first time you start to see a little bit of a crack in the facade of Pharaoh. He's starting to, all right, pray to your God. My, my magicians can do the same thing, but pray to your God. Maybe I'll let you go. So there's starting to be this little tiny crack. And then as soon as there's relief, as soon as the frogs stop overrunning the land and they're dead and they're piling frogs up everywhere and it's stinking and it's nasty, but they're done, they're not croaking and jumping in beds anymore, then Pharaoh says, nah, just kidding. No, we're going to keep you. So it's this hardening of heart. It's the cycle that's going to repeat. So the next plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. Throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Gnats or mosquitoes. I don't know if your translation says mosquitoes, but the word canine, uh, I think, is the Hebrew word. It means uh, any two-winged biting insect. So insects that bite rather than just swarm and annoy you. Gnats uh, don't really bite as much, so it might be mosquitoes. Might be a better translation. Take your pick. Um, they did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. It's easy to mess around with trained snakes and trained frogs and stuff that turns water red, but when you got to train mosquitoes or train gnats, <laughs> so they're not able to do it. And uh, the magicians realize it. We, we're okay. We have reached our limits in our Egyptian trickery. So the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. So now you see the magicians are starting to waver. And the officials are starting to second guess Pharaoh. And uh, soon in the next cycle they'll actually turn against him. They'll urge him to, to stop and let people go. Uh, but the idea here is that uh, there's a phrase that says, all the dust of Egypt became gnats. Here again, when you're reading scripture, keep in mind, this is where Christians get kind of uh, sidetracked. You read articles, like I mentioned last week, you go online and you see somebody that's described all the plagues and how they would have happened naturally. You know, well, the water turns to blood because of algae bloom, so that causes the fish to die, which makes the frogs get out of the water because they don't want to die like the fish. And then after the frogs die, their bodies uh, decompose and, and the larvae that are in those give rise to these gnats and then the gnats are going to lay eggs and those turn into flies and da, 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 da. And try to explain all this stuff, which is fine. Scripture doesn't give us the mechanism that God used. Scripture doesn't give us the mechanics of how it works. It doesn't give us the literalness. Like where did these gnats come from? They literally did dust transform into gnats and start flying around? Or is dust of the earth a figurative expression like it's used from dust you come, the dust you'll return? Is it just used to mean that gnats came from, from wherever gnats come from? Which at this time they didn't know about eggs and larvae and the life cycle and all that. So maybe it could have been something like, doesn't matter. The point of the text is it's miraculous timing and it's miraculous extent. That's the key of the Exodus. Even if you could explain the mechanics of these things, it doesn't explain or it doesn't account for the timing of it. When God does miracles, it's not like he has to invent them wholesale. He can use normal things at miraculous times to and try and get, decipher the details. You know, when you start to see in the you turn on AD or History Channel or something like that, you'll, you'll usually have around this time of year, it's usually around Easter and Christmas is when you get these. 
documentaries that try to explain everything through the mechanics of how it worked and give theories and this and that. Those are fine and they're interesting if you're a nerd, but they're <laughs> not, and I'm a nerd, I say that as one of them, but they're not the thrust of the text. Remember, this is historiography, not science or, or, or um, literary or literal analysis of phenomenological events. This is, this is theological writing. This is telling the first generation of Israelites who have left Egypt, their parents died in the wilderness, they're about to enter into Canaan and become the nation of Israel. This was written to them by their leader Moses to tell them who they are, why they are where they are, and what the purpose is for them going where they're going. That's all of what Torah is for, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So we got to keep that in mind. The thrust of this is theological. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. I saw an article in an Israeli newspaper that I follow online, and it said, you know, who cares if the Passover didn't happen? It's the story behind it that matters. That's garbage. If it didn't happen, there is no story behind it. Because the rest of the Bible roots itself in, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who parted the seas of the, uh, the Red Sea so that you could cross through. If it didn't happen, then who cares what the theological message is? That's what the Torah gives us in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you want to be aware of these false dichotomies, these, these people that are usually tend towards the super theological conservatives that say, well, we got to prove every literal detail and show exactly how it literally happened. So they'll do experiments about how dust could turn into gnats, for instance. I don't know if they've done that or not, but it sounds like something they do. Uh, these are the people that try to find the ark and try to do all this other ridiculous stuff. So they'll just press for that because as if your faith hinges on that. But then the other end are the liberal theological liberal scholars that say, oh, it's all, you know, a couple of Israelites crossed the muddy pond and made it into Canaan and then wrote all this stuff afterwards to explain and to give their theology. Well, who cares about their theology if it was just a couple of Israelites crossing a muddy pond? You want to be in the middle where truth is. And it's, is this literal explaining the details down to scientific precision. No, the Bible doesn't work that way. You don't, you don't need to go that route. That's when you end up going down rabbit trails and trying to figure out how dinosaurs could fit on the ark. That's just, you're so outside of the text that it doesn't matter anymore. But you don't want to do the opposite reactionary and say, well, none of it matters. It doesn't matter if it was all made up because it's the timeless truths that count. And that's, that's a neutered faith. There's nothing in that. There's no, there's no depth to that. So you want to be in the middle where scripture is. Did it happen? Yes, it absolutely happened. Did it happen exactly how it says in every word detail? Not really. It could be a stylized account. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how ancient historiography worked. Um, are there theological truths in it? Absolutely. You want to keep sight of the overall theological message. But does that mean you just say, eh, it doesn't matter if it really happened? No. No, it happened. Same thing with the resurrection. You need to prove how a body could be animated from the dead supernaturally? No, as if you could. Does it matter that Jesus rose from the grave? According to Paul, it does. If he didn't, then we are wasting our time, although the food's good. So, <laughs> five minutes. we gotta, we got to press on here, but that, I just want to emphasize that. I want it on tape to emphasize so other people can know. You want to find that balance because Christians are just so all over the place when they study the Bible. And it just ooh, drives me crazy as a Bible teacher because you're missing the forest for the trees. All right? Uh, let's get to the last one of this series, which is actually the first of the next cycle. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water, and say to him, This is what Yahweh says, Let my people go so they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. In other words, you won't even be able to step anywhere without stepping on the flies. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, Yahweh, am in this land. Not a faraway God, ruling from Canaan or wherever my people want to go. I'm here, and I'm in charge, and your gods aren't. Now, the last two plagues, this one and the one before, those would have been in the realm of the sky goddess, Nut who was over all the skies and the winds and the swarming things and the flying things. So already we're knocking another god's power base down through this place. On that day I will deal differently. So in other words, now it's made explicit. There's going to be different differentiation. Your people are going to be suffering this annoyance of swarming flies everywhere. I grew up in South Georgia, and flies and gnats are the most annoying thing in the world. When I go down to visit my family now, I can't be outside. If, it's, if there's gnats and flies around. It just, it drives you bananas. That's why the South has screened-in porches, specifically because of these flies and how annoying and awful they are. So imagine that times a billion, and that's kind of what we're getting at. But they're not gonna be that way in Goshen. So this is a, a plague, but it's a sign. So that your average Egyptian will look around and go, why are we suffering and miserable? But there's like this invisible wall where the gnats just stop. And everybody on Goshen, I mean, they're slaving away. They're making bricks and they're miserable in a different way, but not because of flies and swarms. So, verse 24, the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials and throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. That's the language that harkens back to the flood, actually, when it talked about the land was ruined because of the flood. Uh, if you were here for Genesis then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. He says, Pharaoh's starting to barter now. He's going to try to bargain. Okay, sacrifice to your God, but do it here in Egypt. I don't want you to leave. So Moses, as a good ancient Near Eastern bargainer, is going to respond in a polite way that's firm and insisting on his original demand all the time, but in a way that doesn't unnecessarily shame. Uh, Moses said, verse 26, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer, Yahweh our God, would be detestable to the Egyptians. If we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, won't they stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God as he commanded. So he's responding somewhat disingenuous, but it's kind of how the bargaining, if you've ever been to a bazaar in the Middle East, it still works that way. You say, you know, this. how much is this? Oh, it's 50 shekels. Oh, I've never heard of such. Oh, I can't feed my kids with that. No, I can't pay that much. For, okay, 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 okay. Give me an offer. You know, and you do this back and forth, and it's really, I don't like it. It's really weird. I get taken advantage of. But that's kind of what's going on. Offer? No, but let me counter offer. So it's this, there, it's, it's a cultural thing that's happening. And, um, and, and Moses isn't lying. The Egyptians were... They did look down on the Hebrews. They looked down on pastoral herding, as we saw in Genesis. They kind of looked down. Remember the, the Egyptians are the metrosexuals of the ancient world? We talked about Genesis. They're all clean-shaven, and they've got their eyeliner. The Egyptian eye, ladies, if you do that with your makeup, that's from Egypt. 
Um, they're, they're very, they're very well groomed. And then the Hebrews are these dirty, hairy mountain people with their goats. And we just, you stay over there and do your thing with your goats. We're going to be in our cities with our clean water and our bathrooms and all of that. So there's this cultural thing. And he's, Moses is like, oh, they don't want to see us sacrificing in the land. They'll get mad. They'll stone us. And kind of like a little wink, wink there. Um, and and so Pharaoh's like counter offers the counter and says, I'll let you go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. So Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I'll pray to Yahweh, and tomorrow the flies will leave. Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart, would not let the people go. So again, there's relief, and, well, my bad, just kidding. You're going to stay here, and you're going to be slaves. This is going to happen for one more cycle. And the plagues are getting progressively worse. They're ramping up, and they're ultimately going to be the, the, the most significant plague, which is going to be a direct strike at the entire Egyptian culture um, with its notion of Pharaoh being the firstborn son of the sun god. So uh, it's just getting kind of, things are turning a corner. Plagues have gone from minor annoyance to, all right, now it's getting serious. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's going to continue to harden his heart. Even when his Egyptian officials plead with him, he's going to continue to maintain his pride because this is a theocracy. He is not just the leader. He is the God. And so he cannot waver in the face of this unnamed, weird, hairy people, goat, herders, God named Yahweh that he doesn't even know. So that's the battle that's set up. And that's what we're going to look at next week, Exodus 9. So come back, bring a friend, tweet about it, invite people on your Facebook list, uh, tell people that you work with, people that you play shuffleboard with, whatever you do, tell people about it, bring them next week, but we're out of time. So have a great week.